Welcome to uh, the third of a multi-part series of presentations on comparative public sector budgeting and financial management. Uh, as you see, I've called this an introduction, but it's actually a reintroduction as uh, most of you have been grappling with the issues related to public sector budgeting and financial management now for about six weeks. And this will provide an opportunity more or less to solidify some of the understandings that you've hopefully taken away from the course. Uh, before we begin, on these slides, like the other slides, there's a fair amount of intellectual property which I've taken from other websites. Uh, so I apologize to the copyright holders and please notify me if you have any problems with these slides. So why do we care about comparative public sector budgeting and financial management? Uh, as we've seen in sev the several weeks of our course, uh, this, this course, it's, an, it's a summary of hopefully everything that you've been learning from your various classes at SEPA. Uh, as you've seen, uh, we've had to draw on various theories of economics, of politics. We've even tackled already a couple of models from sociology. And so this is a course where hopefully you're starting to put everything together that you've learned from these various classes. Uh, let's take the example of uh, Turkish public expenditure that we saw in the second week, uh, looking at uh, issues of economics. I mean, in front of you, you see uh, the Blue Mosque. I think it's the Blue Mosque. And Turkish authorities have to decide basically whether to allocate resources to the preservation of their cultural heritage or to allocate resources, let's say, to community development, which is the picture you see next to the Blue Mosque. So economics is fundamentally the study of the distribution of resources under scarcity, which is also more or less what budgeting and financial management uh, seeks to achieve. Uh, you see below that a chart looking at uh, government expenditure in various countries. And naturally, we, we want to know, well, why do some countries spend more in the public sphere of life than other countries? Uh, in the class, we've tackled a number of issues uh, which try to explain this related to public goods, related to the view of government as providing those goods which free markets cannot provide for themselves. But still, we're left with this unusual conundrum about why some countries can spend up to two or three times as much as other countries. Uh, naturally, we might have some difficulty believing that these differences are only due to preferences or the nature of these economies that we're looking at. Uh, you remember from class, we said, well, uh, government spends more in markets which are more widely distorted or where markets cannot play the same role in allocating resources. But as you see from this graph, we see several developed economies with very different levels of government expenditure. So we know that any theory that draws on market failure cannot be the whole story. Uh, we looked at various uh, models of politics and we say, well, maybe if government is the area where our different political interests come together, then that would explain this, the size of the political arena can help explain the size of government and therefore government expenditure. Uh, you see below the 
the allocation of political parties and the Turkish Mejlis, uh, which might provide some clue about how political preferences translate into expenditure preferences. And we've looked at several examples where interests of various political parties, which then in turn reflect the interests of various segments of society and how that translates into expenditure uh, priorities. Remember we said for this course that political parties don't really exist. Um, they simply reflect or they pass through the interests of various segments of the society. Uh, not only the way they want to live together as a polity, but also the types of public resources that they want to consume together. Uh, you see in the chart right next to that on the right, uh, and the allocation of expenditure amongst various segments of Turkish society, which is fundamentally a neoclassical sociology view of public spending. And what we're interested in here is trying to assess the way that public expenditure mm, distorts or changes the relative spending power and thus the relative political power of various segments in a society. So looking more or less at the, the syllabus that you have during your studies for these two years, hopefully you see using this very simple example of Turkish public expenditure that we've already looked at in the course, how the coursework that you've taken on politics, economics, uh, certainly uh, management, uh, to some extent sociology, how the budgeting exercises and arena to bring all those different perspectives and the models that you've taken from these courses together. This course is labeled Comparative Public Sector Budgeting and Financial Management. So in the next series of slides, we'll be looking at what each of those words means in the context of this course. Let's look first at comparative. Um, by comparative, we want to look, we want, well, we want to compare, basically. We want to compare uh, different budgets, not only the allocation priorities, but the methods that various ministries of finance or the uh, agency responsible for collecting the budget, the various techniques that these agencies use in order to pull together these disparate views of the economy, of, of the polity, and of course the society. Uh, in front of you, you see uh, a comparison of the UK budget and the US budget, uh, which you can download from the internet, and I've provided links for those. Uh, and just looking, having a very cursory glance of these budgets, you see that for the, the year shown, uh, the, the British tend to have a very strong focus on balancing the budget, uh, whereas in the Americans tend to focus much more on, on growth. Uh, reflecting in this kind of cheeky way uh, the British uh, conservatism, the interest to maintain balance, whereas in Americans have typically been seen as this culture that wants to grow and expand. Um, so we also see that each of these two societies have different views about the way they grow the pie, namely they grow uh, the economy and the base from which they collect taxes and hopefully engage in public expenditure in an effort to expand that pie, and also the way that these two countries share the pie. 
uh, again, stereotyping. Uh, the British have been seen uh, very widely as much, much more interested in sharing um, health uh, and other social programs, whereas the Americans have been seen much more as an individualistic society where each individual or community is responsible per, for providing the social goods used by that segment of society. Um, and while not, this is certainly not a trivial point, when you just look at the, the budget side by side, you notice a, a very stark difference in the way each country reports on its budgeting and the way that it used resources in the past. Uh, the, the Brits seem, tend to uh, show much more vividly, much more clearly using much more graphs uh, where the money went. Whereas the Americans tend to show, be much more nebulous in terms of their reporting about what government is doing probably leading to the wide number of web pages that you've probably already seen on the internet uh, with great titles like where did your money go uh, etc. Uh, naturally in this course I put a very strong emphasis on reporting and graphs because uh, the it's very difficult to, to understand something unless it's portrayed clearly and so I'm hoping very much to give you the tools you need to show your arguments in a crisp, clear way, much more in the Anglo model than the American model. Moving on, uh, we look at the public sector. And I wanted to focus very much in this course on the, the broader public sector instead of focusing particularly on the executive. And uh, the reason for that is that it's international best practice to look at all areas of uh, the public sector writ large because of the fungibility of resources. So if we look only at general government, for example, uh, government being uh, those government agencies and departments, ministries, the kind of hardcore machinery uh, that we typically think of as government, uh, when we look at that part of expenditure, that only gives a very small representation of the overall impact that government spending has on the wider economy. Um, we have state-owned enterprises, we have a large amount of public sector participation in our everyday life. And so we look at that public sector in order to assess that impact and also basically to see where the money's gone. Uh, you see on the slide in front of you a kind of concentric circles view of uh, the, the public sector budget. Uh, at the, this very, very hardcore central uh, part of expenditure is the executive. And the executive is, is in the U.S. what we would think of as the president and the different uh, secretaries, the, the different agencies. Uh, and that's, that's very much that kind of central part of government. Uh, then we can look at the wider part of government, which includes the legislature and the uh, judiciary. That's, that's the wider government. Uh, and finally, kind of enveloping that, we see the, the much broader public sector, which includes uh, government-provided services, state-owned enterprises, uh, various budgets uh, for uh, pensions, social security, and so forth.
let's see how that translates when we look at uh, a financial report from uh, from different countries that we'll be tackling in this course. Uh, you see in front of you uh, an expenditure report from the Turkish case study uh, between the years of 1994 and 2000 and you see that it reports expenditure, total expenditure, uh, expenditure by the consolidated budget. Uh, so that's an attempt to bring together all of these different areas of expenditure. Uh, Non-budgetary funds, uh, those are, or extra budgetary funds, those are funds that are typically not reported in the central budget. And of course, it's been best practice, uh, particularly promoted by the IMF, uh, for at least a decade to bring these extra budgetary or non-budgetary funds back onto the balance sheet in order to provide a clearer view of what government's doing at any particular time. Uh, you also see uh, reports for Social Security and more importantly local government. So that's looking at the the various levels of government that we've been trying to analyze in the course. Uh, you remember from our discussion that even unitary governments will have uh, central government expenditure but also report uh, local government expenditure and regional government expenditure to the extent that uh, the, the country's been divided into administrative regions. Uh, in this particular view of Turkish expenditure, it's broken, it's reported in three panels, if you will. Um, a panel looking at nominal currency units, a panel looking at uh, shares of overall expenditure, and a panel looking at expenditure uh, as a percent of GDP. Uh, naturally, you want to look at each of these panels. What I normally do is I, I focus my attention first off to uh, expenditure as a percent of GDP because that that really tells you well how much are we spending on something relative to what we have uh, so that's generally where my eye tends to go first and then I kind of look at the other panels just to make sure that the trends I'm seeing in as a percent of GDP they reflect uh, what the trends are supposed to be telling me uh, so for example we can look at uh, a local government expenditure and we see from the last panel on the bottom that local government expenditure has been increasing as a percent of GNP uh, but if we look up at the panel that tells us expenditure as a share of total expenditure or how much the government is spending in general we see much more stability in the share of overall expenditure so what that probably tells us is that that overall government was expanding relatively quickly in this period and so the expansion in local government probably had a concomitant increase in spending at the central level as well. So by looking at both those panels we can get a deeper feeling for what the data is doing at any particular time. And of course we want to look at uh, expenditure in currency units. We don't want to pay too much attention to that because of course lots of things can be happening to the local currency which would distort our view of how the government is allocating resources at any particular time. Uh, hyperinflation of course is an excellent example of this. 
uh, during a period of hyperinflation, we would see huge increases in the amount of nominal spending, even though that is that does not correspond with large increases in real expenditure. And don't forget the difference between nominal expenditure and real expenditure. A nominal is just the number of zeros on the paper currency. That's just the dollar sign or the currency sign of what you're spending. The real value is what you actually receive for that money. Wagons, computers, iPods, uh, roads, etc. We now turn our attention to the budgeting bit of comparative public sector budgeting and financial management. Uh, when we think of a budget, that's basically what we want to spend money on in the future. What are our budgetary priorities? Uh, so in this kind of cheeky slide, you see uh, President Obama telling me, hmm, well, I want to create jobs. Think of that as a political pronouncement or a legislative pronouncement. Okay. Remember that in general, the policy-making uh, sequence or scheme is that politicians will stand up and they'll tell, look, we have these priorities, okay, political or policy priorities, which then get translated into law, various legislative acts or different executive re regulations. Those in turn then need to be budgeted. They need to be scoped. We need to figure out, well, how much would it cost to put this particular policy that we've all agreed to in the legislative forum or in an, or in an administrative forum, okay, if it's an administrative uh, regulation, okay, how do we cost all that and put it into practice? How many people do we have to hire? Uh, how many computers or machines do we have to buy, etc.? Okay, so that's that's the normative part of this whole budgeting process. Uh, we look at uh, jobless figures or unemployment, and we say, well, we have this uh, employment policy. These are what the data tell us, and this is what we have to do. But remember, we're always balancing this kind of technocratic view of the budget with the political view of the budget. Naturally, different interest groups in the society have different interests. Um, labor may want to promote full employment or above. Uh, capitalists may want to uh, reduce the amount of labor, particularly in a society with large amounts of social protections. And so it's the, it's the political dialogue or debate between these various interests that will often decide very practically the numbers that go into a budget and the way that that budget's actually executed. Uh, you see on the slide in front of you the prototypical budget cycle with revenues coming in. We decide how we want to spend the money and then we ultimately spend the money. Uh, but remember that this budget cycle, particularly in very large countries such as the United States, we budget for things that we don't actually expect to use for one to two years out. So you'll often have this, what's known as the bullwhip effect. And the bullwhip effect it basically says that when we plan to do something now, it has long-term effects. And as we try and adjust to those effects that we're seeing, we might over or undercompensate our expenditure today. Uh, we'll see this bullwhip effect in practice 
throughout the course. And in any case, in case you're curious about the bullwhip effect, maybe you'll want to, to Google it. There's a couple of great games uh, in the management literature uh, where you can actually practice uh, in an industrial setting to see how decisions on production and uh, the information you get about sales, how those two feed into each other in order to create this highly unstable system. And so what we see is even if we have the best of intentions for budgeting, simply by virtue of the way we set up this budgetary system, we might get what all of us wanted, but what none of us particularly needed. Uh, and I show this by the lady here who's working in some industrial job. And so she's telling herself, well, you know, thank God that I have a job, but this isn't exactly what I've trained for. So the high policy pronouncement did achieve its result of employing this lady, but because of these enormous variations in terms of politics and in terms of the way the natural uncertainty or variability in the budget cycle, we can see large groups of beneficiaries receiving goods and services that is not exactly what they wanted or is not exactly at the time that they wanted it. Continuing on this theme of budgeting then, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the way that the budget impacts on economics, on politics, on the society, in order to really get you to start thinking about those non-technocratic aspects of the budgeting exercise, uh, both in the textbook and in your various manuals that you'll receive if you have to do this for government, they talk very specifically about procedures and methods. And in your time in the university is your chance to think more broadly about what, what your work is actually doing. And so I wanted, using several examples, to kind of focus in very sharply on the very uninocuous effects of, of budgeting, public sector budgeting. Uh, what I've done is I've shown a Turkish expenditure in the mid-1990s from the case study. And I've looked at expenditure on wages and capital. Uh, this is overall expenditure. Uh, these are not rates of change. But even from a very simple chart like this, you can see that the budget does have differing impacts on capital and labor. We see that uh, wages in the period are higher than expenditure on capital, which of course sets automatically locks in particular trends for future investment decisions because the Turkish government at this time is spending relatively more on wages, which most governments do anyway. It's not particularly surprising, but it commits them to some extent to continuing to provide this method of income to a particular segment of Turkish society, which are civil servants. And as these civil servants receive more wages, as they become bigger, they, they start to achieve greater amounts of bargaining power uh, when it comes time to discuss future budgets. Uh, so we see then that even very innocuous decisions about, well, we need money in order to build roads, in order to teach our children, etc., how the simple allocation or reallocation of resources in a society can have political effects and social effects, which then in turn 
feed into future budgeting cycles. Not only that, but anytime we spend money, that is, of course, going to have fiscal policy effects. Uh, you remember from the previous lectures, we talked about the expansionary effect on the, on the overall economy that fiscal policy has. So if suddenly we decide to build a uh, R&D park in some area of Turkey, in Eskisehir, uh, we can see that merchants in that area will become richer, incomes will start to rise, uh, people become more affluent, either consumption or investment or both in that particular area will start to expand, quite possibly to the detriment of another area where we have raised taxes in order to draw those resources into the city of Eskisehir. So the budgeting cycle, the budgeting exercise is never completely neutral. Uh, anytime you spend, you always have to think, well, where are we taking resources from? And every time we spend, we have to think, well, when we're spending on this thing, what secondary impacts will that have on other areas of government expenditure, but also on the local and wider macro economy? In our continuing look at the various elements of the course, I draw your attention now to the final element, which is the financial management element. Uh, and basically, as we saw a little bit in the Uzbekistan case, and as we'll be seeing much more in the following weeks, this area of the course is concerned with how do we get the money we've planned on giving, how do we actually get it there, and can we make sure that everything we wanted to get there actually arrives. Um, so. As we tackle the various areas of financial management, please keep in mind the five W's that have always served us very well throughout the course. Um, who are we giving the money to? What are we giving the money for? Where is the money going? Uh, when is the money supposed to get there? And have we delivered the money in the best possible way? Uh, often when we talk about financial management, we talk about resource le leakage. Uh, we're very much concerned with resources that were supposed to go for uh, building bridges or educating children that actually never arrived. And there are a number of reasons for that which are covered in the text and which we will discuss in class. So we move on to uh, case analysis, case studies. As you've seen, cases are the bread and butter of this course because there's so much of public sector budgeting and financial management which is so dry if you try and just tackle it in the abstract. Uh, like we said, if you open a textbook and, hmm, well, that's the procedure we use to budget resources, especially for someone that might not have worked in a government very long, it seems very abstract and very dry. So, so we plow directly into cases in order to try and fit this abstract material into very concrete cases. Uh, let's look uh, again at the El Paso case study. Uh, as you recall, I gave you the El Paso budget book for 2010. And the, the question I think we were trying to tackle was, does El Paso spend too much on the police? That's uh, a very interesting question, of course, particularly as El Paso is located next to one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Uh, nevertheless, we want to know if resources are being used efficiently and effectively. 
So first, we, we look at the data, which you see on this chart. It shows the expenditure on fire brigades, on the police, on uh, mobility services, etc. Uh, not only in absolute terms, but also as a percent of the budget, which is natural. Uh, remember from our previous slide, we said that we don't only want to look at absolute amounts. We want to look at relative amounts because that tells us where the priorities are in our society about what we want to spend our money on. So we look at the, the chart and we see, hmm, well, you know, El Pasoans, they, they spend quite a lot on the police. Uh, they spend roughly 15% of their budget. Uh, so out of every $100 that they spend going to work every day, they, they walk over the police department, indirectly of course, and they plunk $15 on the counter and say, oh, thank you, Chief Inspector, or thank you, Captain, for protecting me and my children. And what we want to do is we want to figure out, well, is that too much or is it too little? And in the course, uh, you've been given numerous tools that will help you to assess uh, whether those funds are too much or whether they're too little. Uh, we think about our market sizing exercise and we ask ourselves, well, what is the market size for policing services in El Paso? And naturally, we can't just Google the population of El Paso and say, well, there you go, mates, it's 700,000 people, because that's the population of El Paso. We have to segment this market according to risk strata. Uh, some people are much more vulnerable to crime. Other uh, parts of the local population are less vulnerable to crime. Uh, and the economic impacts that that crime will have on those segments also varies. So, for example, uh, you have a very rundown part of the uh, city where people earn very low incomes and uh, it's mostly petty theft. And so the incidence of crime in that area is relatively high, but the expected value of crime in that area is relatively low. Whereas in, you might have a crime wave of uh, organized crime going into a very affluent areas of the city, uh, people engaging in murder and mayhem, uh, which of course has knock-on effects in terms of investment, in terms of travel, etc. Uh, so it's that area, the, the more higher value area of crime, if if we can talk about people's rights only in economic terms, it's that higher value of crime that we want to focus most of our resources on, of course, because remember, resources are scarce. So we think, hmm, well, how much money would we spend on the police, okay, and what kind of benefits would we achieve under various scenarios? And of course, we can't look to the, the status quo view of the world, the way things are at present, because that doesn't tell us, the, the positive view does not tell us very much about the normative view. Namely, what we have now does not necessarily tell us very much about what we want. So again, we have to go to theory in order to assess, well, what, what are the social costs of policing and what are the social benefits? And so maybe we Google very quickly uh, various theories or approaches to law enforcement, and we see that there are four approaches to law enforcement. Uh, community policing, 
uh, broken windows theory, which basically states that we want to minimize the perceived effect of crime on the overall society, uh, intelligence-led policing, and proactive policing. And so we sit down and we think, okay, how would we organize our crime-fighting efforts assuming each of these theories was the most appropriate way of tackling crime? Uh, and of course, by now, hopefully, you have this premonition that you would go through this exercise, but you would also Google around a bit to see which approaches to policing have been more effective in particular communities. Uh, such Googling around might also help to refine your intuitions about how to assign relative costs and benefits. What, we, what we've seen from this exercise in the course, of course, is that different theories of policing will imply different costs and benefits uh, of this policing effort to our society. As you see from the graph below, in if we use particular theories of policing, we're going to have uh, overexpenditure, namely this 120 million that we're spending on police in El Paso, it's too much, okay? Um, particularly if we believe that community policing is really the way to go, okay? Then we're spending way too much on community policing and achieving way too little. And we can therefore deduce that we are putting too many resources into the police. We have to draw resources out into more productive areas of local expenditure. Uh, again, remembering that we would never just conduct this exercise and then rush immediately to City Hall and say, well, this is what you've got to do, mayor or city manager. Uh, instead, we would confront with data uh, looking at several several empirical studies or running several empirical studies ourselves and we will see later in the course how we would design and implement these empirical studies. Remember, however, that budgeting is looking at relative or marginal changes rather than looking at absolute changes. Uh, you recall from several class exercises we were talking about marginal economics and the fact that when we allocate resources amongst various sectors of a society, or in this case, a government budget, we always want to look at the marginal contribution of that expenditure on the marginal happiness that it gives to our particular society, or that group in the society, and the weight their happiness has on overall happiness or utility or welfare in our society. So looking at this slide, we see the differences or the changes uh, in welfare compared with the absolute levels of spending on various services in El Paso. Uh, as a young economist, I remember uh, the advice given to young economists, and uh, it's something like uh, degustibus nones disputandum, uh, Latin for there is no arguing about tastes. Economics is the study of how, how to allocate resources efficiently. It is not the study of what we want to allocate resources to, what we, what we prefer to consume as a society. However, the 
budgeting exercise, the, the public sector budgeting exercise, in many ways is an exercise in trying to determine what we want to consume and produce and to, to live as a society. Uh, so, de gustibus si est disputandum, apologies to the Latin scholars in the audience. And we think about this in the context of the size of expenditure for the police in El Paso. And we see that from the graph below, maybe that marginal or extra unit of spending on the police does not give us the same economic equivalent return or benefit that spending on other services does. Uh, for example, uh, building more and better bridges with Mexico. Okay, looking at the, the chart below, uh, we see that if we spend an extra $100 to improve transport over these bridges, the local economy will receive $400 in benefits, uh, as opposed to extra spending on the police, which has a relatively lower benefit that nonetheless is still higher than if we spend more money on the public libraries. So we see from this marginal analysis that, well, we probably want to shift resources out of the police into bridges. However, we stand back and we say, well, that's all fine and good, but what if we as a local community value safety and security much more than simply the amount of money we receive from our paychecks. Um, and that comes higher wages in theory should come because as there's more transportation, there's access to more, better, cheaper goods, and therefore real income should rise in the local economy, uh, assuming we believe the theory. And so we say, okay, well, we should reallocate resources if we want to maximize our personal disposable incomes, but how do we want to allocate these resources if we want to live in one of the safest cities or the safest city in the United States of America? So we can think of that almost as a constraint on this optimization problem, okay? Namely, we want to optimize our incomes, but we have this safety constraint. So we can't take resources away from police if we want to make sure that we want to achieve a particular objective, such as promoting safety. Uh, we can think about this in the context of Europe. Uh, they want to allocate resources in order to maximize the disposable income of citizens, but subject to a particular social welfare constraint. Okay? Uh, we are unwilling to have people who do not have access to uh, health services, emergency health services, provided for free by the state. If we accept that constraint, which was put in, in view of uh, the broader social welfare, then we have to think about how to allocate resources using this marginal condition, okay, in order to make everyone as happy as possible. So what am I trying to tell you? I'm, am I trying to tell you that we should always allocate resources such that the marginal benefit of an extra dollar of spending always equals the marginal cost? In other words, should we give up one unit of something to get one unit of something else? That makes us just as happy. And the answer is yes and no. 
of course, in the, the Zen-like way that I'm always answering these questions. The answer is yes, we should, okay, um, in view of this marginalist neoclassical way of viewing the world. If we allocate resources between bridges and police and libraries such that each extra dollar we spend on these goods and services makes us just as happy, then we can be relatively sure that as a community or society, we have maximized the use of our resources, maximized the efficiency, the effectiveness, the happiness that we get from the government expenditure that that we've that has been allocated through this particular budget. But we remember that we have particular what what we call constraints. Uh, economists call them constraints, but uh, political scientists and uh, legal scholars would certainly not call them constraints. I mean, they would call them rules for living in a society. I mean, we we need a certain level of uh, security. We need a certain level of social justice. We need to ensure that particular populations are not impoverished. Uh, excessively by uh, particular economic policies such as free trade. So to that extent, that enters our, our, our utility. I mean, and we can see that very clearly in this case of El Paso, that if we want to guarantee a certain level of safety, then we're very happy to trade off uh, the, the much larger gains we could get, for example, in spending on mobility or improving bridges with Mexico in order to achieve that particular political objective that has then been translated into uh, budgetary priorities. Now let's step back a bit and think about what these bridges actually mean in terms of what we've been learning in the course. Uh, as you've seen by now in the course we've learned how to calculate the value of numerous bridges. Uh, we've seen um, an example here about how to calculate the value of the Cordoba Bridge in El Paso or any bridge that facilitates mobility relative to police or libraries. Okay, that's thinking a bit about the opportunity cost of expenditure in this particular category. Uh, we've thought already about how to value the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay, what are the social costs of erecting and maintaining the bridge? What are the social benefits in terms of providing mobility, lowering uh, transaction costs in trade uh, with Manhattan and uh, Brooklyn or the, the rest of the area? So we've already seen a bit about how to value these public goods. But of course, the, the story doesn't stop there. Uh, throughout the course, I've been encouraging us to try and link various readings from the syllabus together. And so let's think about what we know about the productivity of public expenditure, uh, what Ashour tells us. He, and you, looking at his regression analysis, he says, well, capital investment does seem to have larger impacts on economic growth, on output, and in theory incomes uh, than other types of expenditure. So what we can deduce from his regression panel is that we have a particular social benefit. We're more confident that that benefit is greater than zero 
okay? Not only because we've used the theory that we've, we got from the course about how to size the market, how to assess social benefits, but we've also seen some empirical analysis that tells us, well, yes, we're proverbially barking up the right tree. Um, but of course, we don't just want to stop there. I mean, think of, think of the brain as a big tree. The more bridges, the more links you draw between the materials, the, the, the better you, we can see the subject as, as a whole. Uh, and we see a mention in the reading about uh, Wagner's law. And so then we see this maybe in a footnote, and we think, well, hmm, does Wagner's law tell us something about El Paso? And, and conversely, does El Paso tell us something about this law? We might look up the law and we might see that, well, as the society gets richer, more prosperous, they tend to allocate more resources on uh, public spending, which is actually a conjecture because there's a fair amount of data that shows this quote-unquote law can go either way. And so we think, well, as El Paso continues to expand, what does that imply about spending on bridges relative to spending on other services? So this is the part where you maybe just sit and play with some of the models. Draw a picture and think, well, we've seen a picture in time. We've seen that there's large gains to be made by investment in bridges and mobility, but this city in Texas isn't doing this. Is it because uh, the city hall is giving up, is, is leaving resources on the table, or is it because of some particular... Uh, trajectory on this this evolution uh, you'll you'll pardon this arguing by analogy but it can we deduce that spending on bridges and other capital projects is simply following a particular evolution which has been well documented by previous scholars and we can therefore predict or deduce a change in expenditure over time so what do you do you say, well, I have this hypothesis about capital expenditure, and hmm, as I'm flipping through the budget, I see that this city in Texas, they have this whole plan for capital improvement. Um, how do I assess this plan? And more broadly, how do I assess all the numbers that I see in this course? Uh, we talked about market sizes. We talked about segmenting. We talked about uh, conducting uh, using theories from public economics such as deducing social costs and social benefits. But at the end of the day, I would encourage you to use something much more fundamental, and that's your imagination. Okay, uh, This sounds kind of uh, new agey, but uh, let me explain what I mean by this. We have in front of us a capital improvement program from El Paso, and we have to we have to assess whether this capital improvement program is basically quote unquote good or bad. And you'll remember that in many of the questions that I've given on the syllabus for this term, I'm asking you these very broad questions. Is a program quote unquote good? Well, how do I assess that? And uh, particularly as I've never been to El Paso, I don't know what this this city is like. Uh, I don't know what the people there want. I don't have any studies from the internet uh, related to the efficiency of this program or spending in general. What am I going to do? 
So maybe you open Mike's cell and you flip around and he gives lots of advice for assessing a budget. He says, okay, well, you have to look at uh, the wages, non-wage uh, contributions to the cost of a project, etc., etc. And so you say, okay, fine. Uh, you put the paper in front of you, you start writing, and, and then you realize, well, look, this is just impossible. I, I, I have no idea what these various components, the cost components of this budget might look, look, look like. So what, what you should do is what your peers, your millions of peers who do these kinds of exercises do. Close your eyes and use your imagination. Okay. Uh, of course, you don't float into the rainbow realms, and uh, but but what you do instead is you draw on your previous life experience in order to try and assess whether this other project that you haven't seen before looks reasonable in light of the other things that you have seen in your life. And you will often hear budget analysts, and you'll often hear auditors. Uh, argue by by reference to other things that they've seen in their life and and that's usually their first port of call before they pick up a pen and start to do all kinds of fancy calculations uh, they might see that in this budget they've allocated roughly $104,000 to the improvement of a particular park and so as a quick and easy way of assessing that they might remember a park that they used to play in when they were a boy in Scotland. Or they might try to imagine that they were in a park in El Paso, okay, and just close their eyes and think, okay, if I was trying to reconstruct the park, what would happen very practically, okay? Uh, do we need three people to come in or do we need uh, 30 people to come in, okay? Uh, of course, in these kind of imaginary cost assessment or benefit assessment exercises, it's not possible to discriminate at a very fine level. Uh, you can't say really whether three uh, park workers or four park workers are going to be necessary. But you can get a rough feel for the, the, the order of magnitude involved. If you've seen a budget that they are planning to hire 200 workers in order to refurbish a very small park, um, just use your imagination. Try and imagine all of these people crammed into this little area trying to refurbish the park. And you'll, you'll clearly see that there's some kind of misestimation involved in that particular budgeting exercise. Um, so in general, when you're looking at budgets, your first port of call is just going to try and just put yourself in that particular situation almost smell the smells and, and feel the environment around there. Go through step by step each stage that they're proposing in the refurbishment or in the construction, etc., in order to give you a rough feel for how this particular project is going to play out. And these skills are particularly important when you start to devise your own budgets, because uh, maybe you're trying to plan a large-scale budget of, for a project that you haven't that you've never seen before. And uh, all of us will be in this situation at some point in our life. And so instead of clucking around like a wet chicken and saying, oh, boss, I don't know what to do. It's all so difficult. Uh, you know, I didn't get training for this. Mm, the better approach might be just to go through step by step, closing your eyes, imagining uh, 
well, I need to set up an office. What's usually in an office? Uh, well, do I need staplers? Probably. Do I need a desk? Well, yes, people have to sit somewhere. And just go methodically through each area as you walk through the particular project in your mind's eye, and that will give you a relatively good feeling for the budget or project that you're assessing, even before you start to pick up a pen and use the more fancy techniques from public economics and uh, the specific tools of calculation that we've discussed in Excel. Simil similarly, not to belabor the point about uh, using your imagination, but there's lots of areas where this kind of exercise will help you during the readings in this course. Uh, I've given an excerpt from the case study uh, from Uzbekistan looking at setting up a modern treasury function for Uzbekistan. And uh, in the bank project, they say that there are thousands of spending units and consolidation centers responsible for making payment transactions, each of these organizations holding generally several bank accounts, full stop. And so you're sitting in New York or you're sitting wherever you are thinking, well, a, this is pretty abstract. Uh, B, there's lots of, of jargon. It, it's not very easy for me to grasp what they're talking about in some country two, 3,000 kilometers away. So what do I do? Again, try and put yourself in the position of one of these spending units. Okay, The bank is proposing that uh, that they they need to uh, computerize, they need to promote the efficiency of these guys which are fundamentally sitting down, they're going through various uh, expenditures or they're collecting revenues that they'll put into their own individual bank account and so you put yourself in the position of this chap who I've put a picture on this slide and you're asking yourself well well, good. If I have a computer, if I have all this fancy World Bank stuff, is that really going to make my department and is that really going to make my government just amazingly efficient? Are we all going to turn into Swiss and Germans tomorrow uh, to, to draw on a stereotype? And so you go through it and you realize, well, maybe not. I mean, maybe I write everything down. I send the, the books to or ledgers to another office. Uh, they consolidate it. It's not really a problem. It's a, their transaction costs, but it's nothing that's going to ruin the country. Um, you sit and you think, okay, well, maybe this chap who we see on the slide, he could steal the money. I mean, he has money in front of him. He's recording things. Maybe he slides some into his pocket. Is that going to really be such a big problem in this context? Um, of course, theft is always a problem. Theft and fraud are a problem. But you think, well, I mean, this, this, this young chap probably can't slide lots of money into his pocket before someone gets suspicious. Uh, I mean, his his boss was expecting $100,000, uh, $40,000 came, someone's going to come nosing around sooner or later. So we think that there's probably some leakage on the financial management side here, which decreases the efficiency of government service provision, but it's not something that you would really expect would be 
completely breaking the way that a government should be allocating resources. Uh, we know that Uzbekistan is not the richest country in the world. We cannot therefore deduce that these transaction costs or even theft costs by these working level uh, civil servants, that's probably not the main story about uh, why Uzbekistan, the Uzbek public sector is not allocating resources as effectively as possible. So then we think, well, what could what could be the real harm? Uh, well, maybe this chap is recording uh, expenditure on something that another department also spent money on. Maybe two departments are are planning on uh, large scale capital improvement projects. Stuff like that would have very serious effects on overall spending and the efficiency of such spending. Uh, duplication, uh, delays. I mean, you can think about uh, someone uh, expecting a paycheck next month for services they've provided to the government, and they don't get paid for several months because uh, the the receipts got lost, okay, or because the the transaction couldn't be found and they couldn't disperse the funds to the service provider fast enough. So then the service provider says, okay, well, I'm going to charge you more in the future. I'm going to provide you horrible service because I know that I'm going to have to wait around and see all kinds of crazy offices and fill in all kinds of paperwork. And we, we can deduce that a situation like that would have a very significant impact on the efficiency and effectiveness of public expenditure. So, in some ways, we have to stand back from this technical report by the World Bank and we have to use our, our critical reason. We have to assess what they're proposing in light of what we know from our own experience. Okay? We see that the project is mainly about computerization and promoting the efficiency of resources and establishing a modern treasury and a single treasury account and fancy, fancy things. And we have to ask ourselves, well, maybe the project is aiming to do the right thing for the wrong reason. I mean, the, what's at the core of this problem is not that there's different bank accounts, but is that there's an enormous potential for duplication and for delays, which cause a strategic reaction by the private sector to decrease the quality of service provision. So just by taking this, this report, somewhat abstract, jargon-filled report, and just sitting down, and, and like we've been doing in class, drawing circles and arrows and thinking through using your imagination about what they're trying to achieve, that will really help you to grab very quickly and simply the main idea of the reading and play around with it, linking other readings from the course in order to make a valid assessment of what the project is trying to do. Throughout the whole course, and even now, I'm, I'm trying to focus you very much on using theory to assess budgets instead of going with your instinctive reaction of looking at previous budgets or Googling around as much as possible for all kinds of data which might help to explain how much resources we need to give to any particular expenditure area. Um, through the course I was telling that, well, let theory guide you rather than the actual budget numbers. Uh, and I'd like to draw a bit from the readings, uh, giving you extra caveats about why that might be true. Uh, there's a number of reasons why we might budget something collectively that none of us actually want. Um, 
I'm looking here on this slide at the amount of spending on housing. Okay, we all wanted to spend more on housing. It shows 27 billion pounds. Uh, we wanted to provide better housing as British to society, but we didn't allocate more resources for that. Now, what inherent in the budgeting process might cause us to budget something that we actually didn't want to budget? Uh, and Mike Sell gives numerous, numerous reasons why a budget might not actually reflect the preferences of the people making the budget or the beneficiaries of that budget who are in turn voters for the people preparing the budget. Uh, you can think about executive negotiation. Uh, different departments are going to negotiate for those scarce slices of the pie. And so the bargaining powers of various government agencies will affect the amount of resources that they have. Uh, different government priorities will affect that budgetary allocation. Even the news of the day, if there's some kind of crazy political scandal, you can often see that different ministers or agency heads will have different bargaining power for asking for resources or for the authority to engage in certain types of government programs simply based on the popular perception or the scandal of the day. Uh, we can think about legislative consideration. Uh, remember that this budget eventually goes into this mass arena of representatives from different areas of the country, all of which are trying to maximize their own political capital. And so it, it's through that lens that each parliamentarian or each member of Congress will take a budget and they will decide how much resources various government programs should be given. Uh, it's fundamentally a bargain. It's fundamentally a political process. It's a technocratic exercise imposed onto a bargaining, a political arena. Uh, of course, there's policy lags that we discussed before. Uh, our allocation for resources to the housing sector might not reflect current needs, but they might reflect the needs of two or three periods ago. Or, more likely, they reflect what we thought we would need today two years ago. Because remember, in theory, we're supposed to be making strategic budgets. So we're supposed to be anticipating our needs two or three years later when we're deciding on budgetary allocations. But as you very well know, things can change enormously uh, in even half a year, much less two or three years. Uh, Mike Sell talks about the incremental nature of budgeting rather than the comprehensive nature of the exercise. And what that means is basically when we think about budgets, and, and we're not supposed to do this. Uh, I, I've been telling us we can't do this the whole term, but it's still human nature, is when we think about how much money we're going to spend next year, our instinctive reaction is to look at this year's spending and say, okay, well, uh, you know, we spent 20, 26 billion last year. Mm, we probably need more housing, not less, and therefore we should spend 27 billion. We know that's absolutely the, the wrong approach to budgeting. In theory, uh, our allocation of resources to the housing sector should be determined by the needs of people requiring housing services, uh, the amount of resources available in our society, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all dictated more or less by theory. 
Okay, we sit down with a pen and paper, we work out the, the best solution, we try and anticipate uh, the equilibrium outcome of political negotiation, and then we say, okay, that's how much we need, without any regard to what we spent previously, in theory. But of course, we can't do that. We have a stock of housing. We have people who've been working in this sector. Uh, and so often, it's easier and more reliable just to top up or top down last year's spending. Uh, practically good, uh, but certainly not a best practice. Of course, there's various strategies that uh, a department uses in order to try and gain more resources, and you can read about those uh, in the textbook. Uh, but counterbalancing that, there are strategies used by the competitor of an agency. Okay, so uh, the head of uh, housing and development agency will be trying to increase their budgetary allocation. Of course, Everybody knows that they're trying to increase their budgetary allocation, and therefore they're going to scale their request down by that amount. And we have to remember that there's other agencies in competition for these resources, and simply because they're more effective at playing this game, they might in turn get more resources than the agency that really wants them. So all of these all of these games then, they determine the actual outcome of expenditure and not what is the best from a normative point of view. Okay, so remember when, when we're analyzing a budget, we always want to start with the normative point of view. What's the best allocation? And only then compare it to the world we see around us. Well, what do we have to do to get from where we are now, the status quo, to the best of all possible worlds. And forgive me for sounding Panglossian, but that's that's the whole reason why we study theory all these years in the university, is to help give us an idea of what should be, rather than simply go along with what is. So in some ways, continuing along this track, um, we think about how to evaluate a budget. And let's talk a little bit about uh, debt management. Let's shift track a little bit from housing or expenditure on any particular category. And let's think more broadly about a particular category or theme in a budget. Uh, in most countries these days are worrying about the, the large debts that they're accumulating because of deficit spending arising from the crisis. And as we saw in the UK budget, one of the big budgetary priorities is trying to reduce that debt over time. And of course, there's two ways of thinking about the debt reduction exercise. Okay, there's the the old approach. Okay, the 1960s, 70s, 80s approach. I call it the bean counter approach here, uh, reflecting uh, the, the the textbook. It's a very difficult approach to grasp, especially if you're not sitting working in a budgeting department. Okay, and this approach says, well, uh, let's cut the problem down and let's look at the debt reduction exercise simply as a procedural matter. Okay, we know that we want to achieve a certain debt reduction. How do we think about the uh, linkages between various agencies spending? How do we think about the way we report a debt in various agencies? Where do we make cuts? What rules do we use to make cuts? 
namely, do we want a blanket ex expenditure reduction across all agencies by a certain amount? Do we want a targeted approach? Uh, how do we assess what we've done by using ratios, trends, etc.? Okay, and that's that's very much the the, the technocratic. Uh, perspective on the problem. Your minister comes to you, he says, look, uh, these are the orders from above, we've got to achieve these uh, debt reductions, you've got to do your part, man, go to it. And so you're a manager trying to reduce the debt. Mm. But what I've been trying to encourage us to do throughout the course is to step back and be more the the, the leader, more the, the high thinker instead of simply the bureaucrat and think, well, what is it that we're actually trying to achieve with this debt reduction? Um, there's lots of cases where debt isn't even very worrying. I mean, of course, you wouldn't go to your minister and tell, well, you know, minister, debt's really not worrying. But assuming that you're the advisor to the most senior politicians, then you would absolutely want to take the managerial approach rather than the more working level administrative approach. So how do we think about trends in UK debt management uh, from this more broad perspective? And as we've been seeing throughout the course, we have to use our four steps. We have to define what the question is. We have to use a model in order to frame our thinking. We have to confront our findings of theory with actual data. And of course, we have to be very critical, not only of our own analysis, but also of the recommendations that are given to us from others. And so thinking about the, the debt exercise using the models that we have from the course so far, we, we need to worry about debt really for two reasons. Okay, uh, The first reason is that because of this expanding debt burden, we get less consumption in the future. I mean, debt is not something to worry about in and of itself. It's not a particular evil like rabies or uh, uh, environmental crisis, okay? Debt, it's a reflection of our ability to consume in the future. It's, it's, it's the way that we drag consumption from the future into the present. And so we think, well, this debt burden is worrying only to the extent that we ha we can consume less in the future, intergenerationally, okay? And as you see from the slide, um, using the analogy of apples, we can eat fewer apples in the future because we ate a large, we ate more apples than we could afford today. And using the material from the course, we understand, well, that might not be as worrying as it looks because if, our debt is allowing our economy to grow faster than the amount of money we have to pay to contract that debt, then actually these rising debt burdens are nothing to worry about. We are literally growing our way out of our debt, which is a very politically popular strategy. And as many of you have told me, it's historically been a recipe for disaster. Yes, that is true, but we cannot dismiss this argument out of hand. What we do is we write down all the possible arguments and we assess them one by one in order to evaluate the probability that it's, it's a rational argument. So do we sit down and look at expanding debt in the UK and believe, well, you know, the British government is taking on large amounts of debt in order to finance large public investments, which will help make the UK economy more productive in the future. 
Okay. In other words, does G, the expected rate of growth of the UK economy, exceed I, which is the interest that the UK government will have to pay on that debt? And, well, I have personal views on this, but I'll withhold them for the time being. The other way of looking at the debt is that, okay, we're, we're not giving up our ability to eat apples in the future. We are actually taking out a signature loan on the income of our children. Okay, So we prefer to eat apples now at the expense of our children's consumption in the future. And that's absolutely fine. I mean, if we could clearly, precisely, and accurately know that our children will want to consume less in the future, that in the unborn children of today are willing to vote for a higher level of consumption by their parents and grandparents, then higher debt burdens are not at all worrying. Okay, So debt in itself is not a problem. The only problem is, well, what is the objective or what is the rationale for that overspending and what are we trying to achieve in our consumption and investment decisions. So we want to assess each of these perspectives on uh, the national debt and one one thing that we might use to help us of course are the other readings from the course. Uh, as you'll recall, there was a reading, uh, an, an audit report uh, from the United States related to the American uh, debt management system and the extent to which um, the, the United States managed its debt effectively. And so we can use this reading in order to draw comparisons with some of the theories or suppositions we have about the UK's debt management. So we look at the UK debt, we see that it's expanding, and we know that that might not be troubling under two uh, conditions or two situations. First, if the UK is growing more quickly than the debt burden, and secondly, if uh, we're not, if we are depriving future generations of consumption, but only voluntarily. And I know that there's conceptual problems related to assessing the desires of unborn generations. We won't get into that now. For now, we simply want to, to practice our skills linking material that we see from certain readings with material from other readings. So let's think about uh, growing our way out of debt in the U.S. context. Uh, we also know that uh, the U.S. debt has been expanding over these years, and we think, well, is that necessarily a bad thing? And what has been the role of debt management in the extent to which that debt burdens our society and thus our possibility for future consumption? And we see the graph on the left shows that the overall interest burden, the interest payments on government debt, have been falling over time. Uh, partly, of course, in response to uh, easing economy, interest, pay, uh, interest rates have been falling, but also is highlighted in the audit report that uh, our debt management practices have become more efficient, thereby decreasing the overall interest cost of the debt 
that the U.S. government has been taking on over the years. Therefore, the interest rate isn't something that just floats out there exogenously. The amount of money that we pay on our debt isn't just something given to us from outer space. It is in part a function of the efficiency by which we manage that debt burden. So we see that in answer to our question about the UK debt, expanding debt burden, we see, well, part of the answer to that question depends on the efficiency by which the UK authorities are able to manage that debt burden as well. So to that extent, we've managed to draw a link between the reading about the US's debt management to t give us some new insight into the UK's debt management system. Let's look at the other aspect of that debt, namely the extent to which we want to take on that debt, and by we, I mean this generation, next generation, etc. You see the graph on the right, it shows a progressively decreasing uh, levels, uh, shares of various segments uh, purchasing U.S. debt, okay? So what this is basically telling us is that there's fewer fewer people willing to take on U.S. debt as a percentage of their overall portfolio over time. And this could reflect two possible trends. Okay, The first is the, the normal trend from corporate finance theory, which we would expect, is that uh, decreasing interest rates have led to uh, U.S. government debt becoming less attractive, and therefore... Uh, fewer households and businesses uh, care to hold this debt simply as a function of its profitability. Okay, but there is another possible interpretation of these data, and that is the interpretation that, well, we don't necessarily want to hold an expanding debt, is that uh, we've become more and more in debt, and we're unwilling to assume uh, to, to finance our government's uh, acquisition of this expanding debt burden. Uh, of course, that implies only foreigners are willing to hold this debt. Uh, so if we believe these, these data, if, uh, sorry, if we believe this rather stylized interpretation of these data, uh, I admit it's a bit of a stretch, but nevertheless, it's a theoretical insight which helps us tell something interesting about the U.S. and therefore U.K. debt, okay, we might consider these data as telling that our generation, and therefore quite possibly future generations, are becoming more and more unwilling over time to hold and assume this increasingly expanding debt burden. Therefore, from that point of view, the expanding debt is something to worry about, which is the ultimate question. I mean, the question that we wanted to answer from the very beginning of the exercise in these two slides is, we see an expanding debt, good or bad, basically. And we, we thought about some conditions under which an expanding debt might be good, or at least not bad, and some conditions under which an expanding debt might be bad. Uh, we looked at some data from the U.S. to help clarify our thoughts or thinking about the conditions under which an expanding debt burden might be good or bad. Uh, we saw the graph on the left, expanding debt might not be bad to the extent we're able to manage that debt efficiently, effectively, 
and it helps to grow the economy. On the other hand, as we see by the graph on the right, an expanding debt is worrying to the extent we're unwilling to finance such debts. Uh, on the purchaser side of these assets, okay, we don't want to hold this debt anymore. We're very worried about the U.S.'s, uh, the government's ability to repay this debt, and also as taxpayers. Uh, look, I don't want to give more and more of my income in order to finance a debt and uh, therefore uh, debt's worrying from this aspect. So in some ways that brings us right back to the very beginning when we were trying to think about well how do we assess a budget? I uh, remember uh, throughout the course we, we've had very abstract, very broad questions. Uh, is this budget good or is it bad? Uh, and we were talking previously that, well, you have a 200-page budget document in front of you. Where do you begin? And uh, there's three possible ways of tackling a question like that. The first is to look for what I was calling the thesis statement of that budget. Okay, A budget, like every other uh, creative work, uh, has one main unifying idea that runs through it. Okay, there, there's, there's really one main principle that we're trying to assemble in this whole budget. And so we look for that main objective or strategy or purpose. And once, once we really grab that core idea of the budget, everything else just kind of, kind of falls into place. Just like any of your other readings from your other courses. Uh, we look at a theory of international relations or we look at a theory of politics. Once we grab the author's thesis statement for that book, all the chapters and all the data the author is showing just kind of fall right into place. So of course one of the first skills that, you, that we have to develop is finding what is that main core idea of the budget. Uh, the second way to look to find good or bad things about a budget are to look at the extremes. Uh, in some ways you can only know something by its extremes. Same way with a budget. Uh, if there's expenditures that are too high or too low, if there's revenue that is uh, being gathered chaotically from one year to the next. Okay, it's those kinds of differences, those kinds of extremes which tell us that something is something interesting is happening behind that budget. Okay, the budget's a reflection of this much larger, much more complex reality that we're trying to deduce behind these numbers. Okay, so we see these two-dimensional numbers and using the models we have to try and deduce this three and four-dimensional world that's lying behind it. Uh, and you've had several examples of this kind of analysis and you'll have many more examples as the course goes on. And then the third way of assessing a budget is just looking at interesting stuff, uh, stuff that catches your eye. Um, in many ways, sampling from a budget, the little things tell you about the broad thing. Okay, uh, There's principles that run throughout a, a budgeting system, a system of financial management, and looking at areas that are of particular interest to us, okay, maybe um, my former background was in healthcare, and so I'm always looking at the health sector and budgeting in the health sector. Well, there's certain relationships between the data in that one sector only, which can tell me quite a lot about what's happening in the overall budget. The way that we as a society choose to balance off resources between one sector 
or subsector and another sector or subsector. Uh, so the third way then of assessing a budget is looking at this interesting stuff and trying to deduce, of course linking your other readings and information, trying to deduce those underlying principles behind the interesting stuff that you're looking at. Uh, let's take another example from the U.S. budget, so this doesn't sound like a course in philosophy. Uh, you see here uh, expenditure taken from the most recent U.S. budget related to spending on various educational programs. So on the budget, I went to Department of Education. I, I uh, went through the text until I found some numbers because, of course, while the text is interesting, it's really the numbers are really kind of the meat and potato of, of analysis. I mean, once we look at numbers, we're, we're looking at subjective data, uh, sorry, we're looking at objective data rather than subjective data. Uh, when someone in a budget document types a line, oh, well, you know, uh, spending on teachers is our priority. It's very difficult to assess the validity of that statement. But once we see a trend in actual numbers, we can say, okay, well, according to the spending, this is the conclusion that we reach. And it is relatively invariant between analysis, analysts. Of course, we know that's not necessarily true. And this whole course is an exercise in balancing these various perspectives of the same objective data. Okay. Um, so we see this education data in front of you. And we fish through the, the chapter and we look at the outcomes that the U.S. government is trying to achieve with this expenditure. Okay, uh, They're trying to reform elementary and secondary school funding by setting high standards, encouraging innovation, uh, increase the number of effective teachers and principals, etc. Okay? It's somewhat difficult to grab one or two main underlying principles behind performance-based budgeting in the education sector. Uh, so what I've done is I've looked at one program here, uh, which uh, is this uh, effective instructional teams. Okay, And I've, I've tried to assess, well, does expenditure help to achieve a particular performance goal set out in this budget? And of course, there is no clear relationship presented in the budget. Uh, so I have to deduce this for myself. I know that there is X amount of resources dedicated to achieving some unknown goal. I do have a list of goals, and so I try and think, well, what's what goal is expenditure on these teaching teams likely to be aimed at? And given the list we see on the slide, I would guess encouraging innovation is the most logical goal for setting up these excellent uh, teaching instructional teams. Okay, So I see the, the, the circled number in front of you. It's, uh, was it 1.4 million, billion, 1.4 billion dollars. And I have to assess, well, do I believe that they will achieve in part or in whole their goal of encouraging innovation based on exactly this expenditure? Uh, so I look at the expenditure, uh, so it's th $3 billion here, and I think, okay, well, what could that money be used for? And basically, they, they could choose to spend this money on two things, either teachers or material. 
Okay, either they're going to hire teachers or reassign teachers, or they're going to give these teachers something to make them better. Okay, and I'm presuming that because these are teams, they're going to be going out and trying to either engage in instruction themselves, or they're going to try and promote the efficiency of teachers already out there. Okay, so either there's some kind of expert team going out and making other teachers work better, or they're some kind of elite team trying to teach better for themselves as a pilot project. I don't know which one it is, okay? Um, partly because I don't have the time to go and dig deeply into this program, but partly because even if I did have the time, this information might not be available. So how do I take an assessment of this problem with such incomplete information? And the answer is, well, like in all the various problems we tackle in this course, we make certain assumptions, we make certain suppositions in order to arrive at logical conclusions. Okay, so I think, well, we have three billion given a normal salary. We, this might fund roughly 40,000 teachers plus a certain amount of material. I don't know exactly what that material is, but I do know from my own past and intuition the rough ratio of a salary compared to the types of materials a teacher might need. Okay, from there I'm, I assume, well, these are probably train, train the trainers. Okay, this, this is a very popular theme even now in education. And given the wording of this expenditure category, I am assuming, okay, that these teachers are going out to try and promote excellence and therefore innovation amongst teachers in general. Okay, that assumption could be entirely wrong. That's okay. For now, I'm just trying to get a feeling for the way that this budget works and the extent to which resources are likely to pass into the achievement of outcomes. Okay, This is not an accounting exercise, uh, so I am not trying to account for how each dollar of this $3 billion is spent and how each dollar exactly contributes to this overriding outcome of encouraging innovation. Uh, I'm trying to build intuitions which get help me to get a feel for whether I believe, using my judgment, that this money will effectively encourage innovation in the educational sector. Okay. Um, before before we move on to the next slide, though, there's an immediate observation which which is it's an immediate stumbling block to me, is that I look at this purported goal, this purported outcome. And a warning bell goes off in my head. Uh, I'm thinking, well, encouraging innovation is not a goal in itself. Okay, We generally do not go out and uh, train teachers to be more innovative simply for having them become more innovative. Normally, we foster innovation to achieve some other goal, such as to uh, educate better, to educate more cheaply, to promote innovation in production, for example, or in the outcomes of education, but we normally, but in my opinion, this goal is not a goal in itself, it is a means to another goal. And therefore, I would very much flag this in any essays or presentations uh, as a potential miscategorization or misconception about performance-based budgeting. Let's continue with the, this example. 
of uh, creating excellent uh, instructional teams. Okay, uh, let's look at the the way that the this the proposed budgetary allocation for this program is changing over time. Um, we open the textbook and we look at Mike Sellen. He says, well, you know, uh, budgets change uh, given a number of possible reasons. Changes in price, changes in workloads. Um, and we look at this list and we say, well, this is either a proposed program or it's a current program with a proposed extension into the future. Uh, and it's not a very obvious kind of extension. I mean, it's not necessarily that we can deduce the price of teachers will increase next year by X percent, uh, their teaching workloads will increase by X number of students per teacher, and therefore we can deduce a change in the amount of excellent instructional team services required. Okay, it's very difficult to make that those kinds of technocratic assessments given the very broad level of data that we have in front of us. So again, we have to take a man managerial approach. We have to step back and we have to let our intuitions guide us. And the basic question here is, well, what are we trying to achieve with our money? And we know that the the supposed objective of fostering innovation is the closest possible outcome given the list that the budget has given us. Okay, because there were a bunch of other outcomes that looked much less applicable to this particular expenditure category. Uh, we see that the Department of Education is expecting an increase in the resourcing of this program by $314 million. So again, in some ways, we have to deduce, we have to assess the impact of this change using our, our, our imagination, basically. Okay, And again, just like uh, the example with the parks in El Paso, we have to sit back and think, okay, what could this money possibly be spent on, and how would spending impact the overall innovativeness and in fact probably quality of actual teaching. So uh, we sit back and we might think to our own experience about uh, being taught or teaching and in addition we might draw a picture, okay, a, a model, because remember models help to organize our thoughts and to give us a coherent framework for evaluating the numbers we see in front of us. So we see a change in budgetary allocation of 314 million and we think well what could they possibly spend that money on and you'll see the equation down below that we've seen so many times throughout the course well output is a function of basically only three inputs okay either there's more teachers labor uh, they're using more stuff like uh, computers classrooms textbooks labor uh, sorry capital or they're learning how to do things more effectively. Okay, they're sitting down, they're thinking, how do I relearn what I used to know? Which is this alpha you see in front of you, that's knowledge. Okay, and of course these inputs can change the, the way they, they translate into output through their effectiveness. In other words, uh, we can change the number of teachers required to have the same number of students know the same amount of stuff. Okay, that's the marginal efficiency of labor, of the labor of teachers in this particular case. 
And so we, we, we use this organizing framework and we think, okay, we have this money, what could it possibly go to? Well, they could hire more teachers. Yeah, that's fine. They could use the money to create better teachers. Uh, they could buy more things like computers, things like that. Um, one way of making better teachers might be to put in place a program of assessment. So again, we think, okay, let's assume that they want to create these uh, excellent instructional teams through a system of feedback and assessment. Okay, that's the main goal. They're not going to hire uh, brilliant PhDs from Columbia. Okay, instead, they're simply going to put in place a system where teachers can learn from themselves and from each other. So we stop and we think, well, what might that involve? Okay, I'm a teacher standing in a classroom. Uh, there might be someone in the back taking notes uh, while I'm lecturing. That's one possibility. Second possibility as well, students might uh, give assessments at the end of each course. Uh, they might fill in papers. So I have to think, well, how many papers will be filled in every day, every week? How will they put them in? Uh, who's going to sit and type those results into the computer? Uh, does it require one extra worker? Or do we use the workers that we have and they'll work more hours? Okay. And suddenly you see this array of possibilities and you're thinking, well, that's, that's pretty complicated. Where do I go from here? And that's the whole reason why we're using this case-based approach is to help refine your judgment. Is to say, okay, well, there's two possibilities. Either there's someone going to sit in the back of the classroom and do assessments or students are going to give in papers with uh, scores for their teacher after every lecture. Which do I believe is more likely? Which do I believe an administrator would, would undertake in a, particular, uh, in a particular state, for example? Okay. And it's through that exercise you might cost out uh, the program under both scenarios and think which one's more effective and then go back and say, well, uh, I think an administrator, if he thought like I did, he would choose this approach. Let's assume this is the right, this is the approach that they take, and let's move on with the case analysis. Okay, so that's a way that you can resolve this incredible amount of uncertainty very quickly. It's not necessarily the, it's not correct from a historical point of view. Okay, be, be, be very careful. It's not that you'll then stand up in front of your minister or your department head and say, well, you know, uh, Mr. Department Head, uh, we know the program worked this way, but let's assume it worked another way. You're certainly not going to do that. Okay, but this is a fast and efficient way of making assessments that then give you a working hypothesis. You've made an assessment that 314 billion looks uh, like it's too much money. Okay, under the assumptions that that you've made for your calculations. With that, you have something very concrete, and you can go back and say, "All right, well, let's talk to some school administrators and let's find out if they actually did it this way or not." Um, and in that way, when you're sitting in front of them, you can say, look, we assumed that there was an evaluator sitting in the back of the classroom. Was that right or was it not right? And they'll tell you, oh, no, no, no. We uh, gave papers to students. And then you can say, oh, well, don't worry, friend. I already have those calculations. And I find that the program is, is still underfunded or overfunded by X, Y, and Z. So you look very professional and you look very concrete. 
So that's why we go through this whole rigmarole of assumptions. It, it's not some abstract game. It's the way that, in some ways, we prepare for the empirical work that is to follow. Let's talk a bit about the nature of the budgeting exercise. Uh, throughout the readings, you've seen numerous admonitions about the way we should structure a budgeting system and a way that we should manage the resources that fall into our our system of allocating expenditures and collecting revenues through taxes, etc. Okay? And you see on this slide two model, well you see one model and you see one uh, approach, one uh, actual way that the budget cycle works. Let's first discuss the model of, uh, of budgeting and financial management. This is taken from a World Bank reading that we have on the syllabus. And it shows the way that needs are assessed and how resources are appropriated until such time as they're actually spent, how we produce whatever it is we're making, roads or hospitals, uh, and how we assess the number of people healed, the number of kilometers traveled, etc. And so in this very rigid concrete very rigid but very concrete planning approach, they say, look, these are the steps to follow and this is what you're going to get and that's how you that's how you decide if it's been effective or not. Okay? Step by step by step. It's the planning approach. And we know that that's extremely useful, particularly for very large organizations, but as useful as that model is, we also know it's flawed. Okay? And in some ways, this is a teaching exercise for all the models that we'll use throughout the course. Now, should we just dump the model entirely? Should we say this is an invalid way of engaging in budgeting? Absolutely not. Okay? Uh, it helps organize our ideas, but we have to be aware of its shortcomings when we're actually involved in the budget exercise. Okay. Most budgets require an enormous amount of flexibility given a very changeable environment. We know that there's a lot of learning that occurs over, over the, the budget cycle. And we also know that there's lots of other stuff that might influence how the money we're spending translates into what we're getting. Okay, we spend a hundred dollars on excellent instructional teams in order to get uh, higher scores on a standardized test. Well, that's fine, except it could be that the scores on the standardized test influence, through the political process, the amount of resources that are available to spend on education. Huh, well, that's funky. What do we do then? So, in some ways, we have to revise the model that we're looking at for that particular circumstance. So we look at the model and we say, okay, it's a useful way of organizing our ideas, but a reader or a minister, these are the exceptions, these are the conditions under which the model doesn't apply. And in class, uh, you'll always notice how I'm saying, uh, yes, that, that model's absolutely right, why or under what conditions is it absolutely wrong? So that's, that's the that's what makes the difference between a barely competent budget analyst and a superior budget analyst, is that the superior one will be able to assess 
all these conditions under which the model breaks down and to prepare for them. Okay, uh, so when you're writing your essays about institutions and processes, uh, and you might get a question, well, uh, the budget process is flawed. Discuss. Okay, uh, of course, it's a question to test whether you have understood how the budgeting process works, but in the same way, it's a question to assess your ability to critique the model and to apply other models depending on other circumstances or situations. Imagine a budget process for an R&D project where the, the aims of the project are always changing by nature because R&D is very unpredictable. Okay, we don't know whether we're going to be financing internet startups, what kind of internet startups, and so we cannot have this extremely rigid, long-lagged budget process in a situation like this. Okay, in some ways the structure has to follow the strategy. Now we look at the, the, the budget cycle in general in the US and we see, well, there, there's a very long lag time. We talked about the bullwhip effect previously. But there's another type of problem, let's say, that is inherent in a budget cycle like this. Uh, in the readings, you've, you've read about the need to have a strategic budget process. And what they mean, when they use the word strategic, they're talking about strategy and the way management uh, scholars speak about strategy. This is very nebulous uh, concept, strategy. Mm, well, let's look into the future. Let's think, huh, what might happen in the future? What do we want the future to look like? Uh, in, in some ways, it's the same imagination approach that I was encouraging you to use uh, numerous slides ago, okay? Is that if we want to budget resources today, we have to close our eyes and imagine very concretely what we want two years from now. And so, and how do we get there? That's the strategy according to management scholars, okay? But be very careful not to confuse that approach of strategy with strategy as an economist might understand the word. I mean, when an economist hears the word strategic, he tends to think, well, how are certain beneficiaries or how are certain uh, civil servants going to react knowing that other people are, are seeing this whole budget process in action? Okay, uh, let's take the example of allocation of uh, resources for housing. You remember several slides ago we talked about the reasons why we might not spend all the money we want to spend on public housing. Now, when we talk about this, the housing, uh, housing funding strategy, from a management point of view, we're talking, oh yes, happy children, mothers, and and house public housing and they have a place to live and this is how we conceive of this program in the future okay in our imagination now an economist might see the situation very differently they might see a proposed allocation of 40 million dollars to housing and think well what would uh the uh the banks giving loans, what would they do? How would they react? How would they strategically react to this government program? OK, 
okay? Knowing that government officials are anticipating their, their anticipation. I know it sounds very kind of, uh, very philosophical, but it is, it's like a game of chess, okay? Um, the government, if the government gives more money for public housing, then that creates incentives lower or lower powered incentives for people to go out and earn money in order to pay for their own housing. Okay, It also creates a subsidy which reduces the market for the for lenders giving money for uh, for housing, okay, for the purchase of flats for example. Okay, So when the government is expecting to give money for public housing, not only do they have to think about this broader policy goal of happy people in housing, they have to think, well, how do people out there seeing us proposing to give this money, how will they react? Okay, well, they might reduce lending. So how do we react in anticipation of their reaction? That is strategy as an economist might see it. And it's that strategic interaction that very much drives a budgetary allocation. Um, I know it's still somewhat abstract and we'll see this example throughout the course, but I certainly want you to start to think about this strategic conundrum as I'm talking about it from the economic perspective. Okay. Um, now there's some other areas of concern when we think about a multi-year budgetary cycle. Uh, naturally, there's the misallocation that's inherent in any multi-year plan, uh, be simply because things change, life happens. Okay. Um, the other problem with these large budgeting exercises are excess democracy, uh, particularly in a school of international relations and politics. We're trained to believe that democracy is good. And all day long we hear the phrase, let's bring democracy here or let's have more democracy there. Okay? But never forget, for every upside of democracy, there is a downside of democracy. Is there are many policy objectives a government wants to pursue that, sh that should not have a full public disclosure, full public information. Okay, because interest groups, very focalized interest groups, can get together to oppose the reform. Uh, thinking most, most about one of the, 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 the broadest government programs in the last 30 years, the European Union. Okay. Would the construction of the European Union and the subsequent expenditures that derive from that creation, would they have happened in a fully democratic process? There's numerous scholars who contend no. Okay. If government officials in Europe had been completely and fully transparent about the construction that they wanted to bring to the peoples of Europe, there might have been a sufficient backlash against the project such that it never could have occurred. Okay. People are interested in their own local concerns rather than these broader liberal welfare-improving projects of unknown outcome. Okay. So there are many times where democracy in a budgeting program and policy making is bad. Um, Greeks uh, often referred to excess democracy as mob rule. Of course I don't want to go into political theory here. What I do want to caution you is that 
putting as much democracy, as much accountability, as much transparency as possible into a budgetary process might might be good from a principle point of view, but it might be bad from an overall per, uh, objectives point of view. Okay, with less democracy, with less transparency, we might all actually get more of what we want from the budget system. Okay, we're we're almost done. Um, we were talking a little bit about critiquing a budget system and thinking about some of the broader systems of the way that we organize our systems of financial management, particularly in the West. Um, several of the midterm questions are going to talk about performance-based budgeting. Okay, uh, Performance-based budgeting signals the apocalypse of Western society, full stop, discuss. Um, so those kinds of questions, they want you to think rather deeply about what it is we're trying to achieve through a system of performance-based budgeting. Um, of course, in the abstract, performance-based budgeting, it's a bit like a motherhood and apple pie. Who could possibly object to trying to tie the resources we put in to what we eventually get out of the system? So from that point of view, it, it, it's quite obvious that performance-based budgeting is a good thing. Um, but then this begs the question, well, why did we wait so long, and why is it the case that no country in the world has a completely, uh, how, to, how to say, a performance-based budgeting system that covers the entire budgeting process, down from local government all the way to the national budget, okay? And so we see, in, in principle, a best way of organizing, but when we see in reality things don't work that way, we have to start digging around at some of the assumptions that we're making. Okay, And f when you look at the readings, the authors are cheerleading performance-based budgeting, and the underlying assumption is that, well, all you guys from these developing countries, I mean, you, you're really not that smart. If you just understood how this worked, you would put it in place even though we, we don't fully use it, okay? But we will, don't worry, someday we'll fully use it because we're all smarties and everything will work out brilliantly, okay? And you, you look at these readings and you say, well, hmm, something has to be wrong here. And a simple model helps us to understand why performance-based budgeting is so, is so vital, but yet so impossible to implement in practice. Uh, you see in front of you, on the top of the slide, uh, some results from, the from this section of the U.S. budget. Um, if you go online to the, the, the budget site you've been given, there's a little section on performance-based budgeting, okay? The performance measures that the Americans use in order to assess the uh, effectiveness of their budget. And it's, it's, from what we've seen from the readings, it's actually extremely rudimentary. And we stand back and we have to think, well, it can't be the case that our policymakers aren't, aren't very smart. Uh, what they do is they give us a table of a social econo economic demographic indicators, and they say, well, uh, those are the performance measures. Uh, good luck. As long as everything's working out, then we're sure the budget's kind of working out okay. And you look at it and you think, oh, well, that's not very satisfying, is it? 
in the rest of the document, you see references to legislative acts or administrative acts uh, encouraging various agencies to use performance-based budgeting and the techniques by which these government departments are to use this method of budgeting. Mm, but it's actually not very meaty. It's very difficult to open this document and say, well, voila, there's, there's the guiding example of a brilliant success in performance-based budgeting in the U.S. budget. We don't see that, and, and we want to know why, really. Well, let, let's look at the model in front of us. I mean, we have inputs. We translate those inputs into outputs. But as, as you know from your own experience, it's very difficult to, to say, well, we, we made 10 new roads, and this led to $5,000 in economic growth in Chicago, which, cre which created the, the building of this new building. Okay? So it's very difficult to say that the building of these two roads equals the building of this one new building through the effects on economic growth. Okay, for the reasons that we've discussed in the course. And that's the reason why it's very difficult to put this in a budget, especially an official document and a public budget, is because, as you've seen throughout this course, the whole process of economic assessment is one of assumptions. It's one of suppositions. And yes, it's entirely possible to say, well, it is most likely under these assumptions that the creation of these two roads led to the growth in taxes that allowed for the building of this new building in Chicago. Okay? It, it's entirely possible to say that. And it is an, also entirely possible to say that that is the most likely method of transmission of these inputs into these final outcomes. But in a public document, because there's so much controversy and so many other possible explanations for an, an economic system, which is easily as complicated as the weather, it's very difficult to make these kinds of public assertions. Even in private, as you see in the course, it's very difficult as well. And that's why it's so difficult to tie outcomes to inputs, uh, particularly at this huge, huge macro level. Uh, we created 5,000 new jobs last year. Well, what inputs did, did we fund in order to pay for those 5,000 jobs? Well, if you're talking very narrowly in a municipality, it's much easier to track those funds than it is at this enormous federal level of an economy worth several trillion dollars. So in that way, that's one of the main mm, tripping blocks for trying to use performance-based budgeting in practice, particularly at these higher levels of government. But then we think, okay, well, I see the problem at, at the broad level. Let's go to a very focused municipal level uh, government program or even, even sub-municipal. One very specific program. Okay, we, we know from the accounting statements what we paid for. Uh, we went into the classrooms or we went into the field and we recorded exactly what we got for that money. Okay, now what did we achieve for, for the stuff we got? Um, in class, you'll remember that we were talking about this pilot project of, uh, of performance-based budgeting from Argentina, where they were funding uh, education so people could get jobs. Now, that's a relatively well-defined arena. We can, 
assess the number of graduates in that program, and that was the output that the that the people making that budget looked at. But then we still have this basic problem, how do we translate graduation rates into actual jobs? And it's that level where we start to have these tripping blocks. Okay, we, we, we know that X number of Argentines graduated from these, um, these work job placement programs, but still we cannot deduce the extent to which that allowed them to get viable employment later, uh, to keep those jobs, or whether they were actually value-adding in the jobs they got. Um, so to that extent, it's very difficult to see a report from a performance-based budget and say, look, we did the things we promised to do in terms of graduation rates, but to tie that to what we actually care about, which is productive, useful, soul-fulfilling employment, it's almost impossible to draw that link. And that's been one of the major historical stumbling blocks to reporting actual performance. So in conclusion, uh, what are we to do? Uh, you're sitting there right now thinking, okay, I've seen uh, several of these case studies. I've seen that all of the systems that we use right now, they're kind of rubbish, but they're the best we have. So what do you want me to do? What's, what is the best system? Where do we go from here? Um, and I guess there's two kinds of trends in the literature. Uh, the first trend is that this, this huge plan system of, of what I call the U.S. Soviet style planning. Okay? And I, I call it that because th throughout the last 30, 40 years, you've seen this trend most markedly in places like the U.S. and the Soviet Union to maximize the efficiency of the resources used by government through advanced tools of planning. Okay? So we elaborate these very long, complicated budgets, and we hope to achieve certain outputs. Okay. And there's been many mathematical tools that have been employed in this broadening exercise to help develop planning at bigger and bigger levels, at more complicated, more complicated levels. And in some ways, this, this method of planning, it's, we're started, it reminds me of the old uh, Russian adage. Okay, we create a budget, and then we basically want to know, well, what happened? Uh, what happened in the program? Uh, who do we blame if something goes wrong? Okay, as often is the case. So the budget's often a tool of blame as much as it is of accounting for resources. Um, what do we do from here? We budgeted to do this. Uh, we didn't actually achieve it. And finally, where's the money? Okay, we, we wanted to give this amount of money. Um, where did the money go? Nobody knows. Uh, so in some ways, the old method of budgeting, it, it reminds one of these four typical questions uh, from the planning days of the 60s and 70s. And we know that even though this extensive method of budgeting and government planning it creates more inefficiencies than it resolves in some ways. It's still, ironically, the benchmark that we use as economists in order to evaluate 
the efficiency of resource allocation. You remember from class I said that it was a little bit of an irony that economists of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they were looking at models of resource allocation through free markets. Okay, They said, well, we have traders. They will do the best they can. They will achieve the social optimum through free trade. But to make sure that's true, let's go back and look at the social planner's optimum. And so you're looking at these models thinking, hmm, well, if, if, if they're comparing free trade and free markets to the social planning optimum, why not just have the social planning optimum? So throughout history, there's always been this tension between planning, which still covers most of our economy, by the way, even in supposedly very free trading economies like the U.S., enormous segments of our economy are, are inside of bureaucracies, uh, corporate bureaucracies, which are not at all free trade, and they are entirely planned. Uh, they run according to budgets. They run according to the, pr the principles of financial management in the same way that government agencies do. So we think, well, there's there must be something to this budgeting and financial management. There must be more than meets the eye. Um, but we know that, that excessive planning is bad. So as a response to this stylized history, as a response to the failures of budgeting and financial management over time, we've had various fads blow over public finance, particularly in the 80s and 90s, as, as fadding in the management sciences became more popular. Um, we saw numerous fads related to uh, new public management, uh, where they say, Basically, the best way to budget and allocate resources in a government is to create a quasi-market situation. Let uh, agency managers trade for resources, establish proxy values for those resources, uh, which economists call shadow prices, Okay, which is it's basically an opportunity cost. Um, I'm getting a certain amount of copper or I'm getting a certain number of workers. What's their value? Uh, they're not in a market, so we don't get a market price, but there's got to be some way to assign a value. And throughout this course, I've been showing you different techniques that we use to assign values to resources, because in this procedure of budgeting, you're, not, you're more often than not going to have relevant market prices. Okay? So you've got to find other ways of assessing how much the Brooklyn Bridge costs. Uh, in a free market, you would look at five Brooklyn Bridges that were traded recently. You would find the last traded price, and you would say, okay, well, the traded price includes all relevant market information, which we know that we cannot do. So you have these wonderful tools that we have been using again and again in order to calculate private costs, private benefits, social costs, social benefits. Um, and as we go through the literature, we see other trends, uh, new institutional economics, from which I actually draw most of these tools, by the way. Uh, and they say, well, uh, in, a, in a free market, uh, you would expect resources to be traded efficiently and optimally, even within a public sector context. Okay? Um, I've flippantly referred several times to the Coase theorem 
in the course. And uh, as you know, the co uh, under particular assumptions, the Coase theorem, which is actually neither a theorem nor belongs to Ronald Coase, um, it says that we should have resources allocated efficiently. Now, in theory, that would apply just as well in a public sector context as it would in a private sector, okay? If certain conditions are met, which I won't get into because this is not a lecture in theoretical economics. But suffice it to say that this trend in new institutional economics has had and will continue to have a very profound impact on the way that we manage resources in our public sectors. Now, what is the implication of this ongoing research and the accumulated experience that we have of public sector budgeting and financial management over the last decades? Well, basically, one of the, the surest things to say is that if we want to find the most effective, efficient, productive method of allocating resources in the public sector, we basically have to look to you. Okay, you as the manager, you as the person responsible for allocating these resources. Okay, and that is why we go through all the tools and we go through all the cases of this kind of course is because there is no optimal computer program. There is no golden bullet system of budgeting resources. Okay, you can't open a book and say, okay, well, Ta-da! That's the way we got to do it, boys and girls. Instead, this optimal system relies on your uh, efficient trade-offs that you take every day allocating resources, and as a group of you working in the public sector, hopefully having the flexibility to allocate resources efficiently, while at the same time not being so flexible that it makes planning impossible and fraud rife. And I know that sounds very abstract now, and that's why in all the cases you'll see, you will see how we trade off those core principles of flexibility and control, which ensures a maximally efficient public finance system.